Welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, George Schneider, here today with Christopher Balding, a Bloomberg opinion contributor and longtime Shenzhen resident. So before we jump into today's topic, which is uh, U.S.-China trade and kind of the game theory and uh, strategic dimensions of, of U.S. policy towards um, towards trying to open up the Chinese market, uh, first, I just want to hear a bit about your China story. So what first brought you to the mainland? Well, what first brought me to the mainland uh, was, quite honestly, my wife's work. My wife was an uh, architect for rock stars in Beverly Hills, and in true China fashion, she got headhunted to come to Beijing, and it was one of those stories where she literally got a call on Wednesday and said, we need you to start Monday morning, so take the first plane to Beijing, and here's a big pile of money. Um, and she showed up, and she calls me, and she's like, what have I done? What have I gotten myself into? And you were married at this point. We were married at this point, yes. And so I actually followed her a couple of days later. And so she's going to client uh, meetings and everything like that. And she comes back one day and she's like, oh, my gosh, for lunch we had filleted duck heads. Okay. And just, you know, they, they throw you in the deep end with an anvil. And so that was basically the story. And then a couple of years later, after I received my Ph.D., uh, PKU uh, in Shenzhen uh, offered me a job. And I, to be honest, thought I would stay probably, you know, three years and nine years later, uh, I'm still here. So can we talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how you feel like you've gotten to know the country, um, particularly, you know, with language, uh, with language limitations and, 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 you know, how the onion has unfolded looking at these uh, macro and, and finance issues over time? I think one of the things... Uh, personally, is that because I arrived in China really not knowing anything about China, to be quite frank, um, is that it, I, I had to develop my China expertise, and I never even set out to become a what you know, the term is China expert. Um, and so to this day, I actually speak very little Chinese. In the first couple of years I was here, I actually tried very hard to speak Chinese. And if you know anything about learning the Chinese language, you, you learn that it is a very tonal language. And when we talk about Chinese being a tonal language. It's not like um, people speaking English with a different accent. It's not like English and Mexicans and Indians and Frenchmen speaking English with a different accent. It is truly that people don't understand a word you're saying if you don't have the tone exactly right. And so for about two years, the first two years I was here, I actually had a private Chinese tutor that I would work with three times a week and I would try to do that. And so what actually caused me to stop was I had, is I had built up quite a bank of, of words that I knew in Chinese. And one day I get into a cab and I'm trying to tell the cab driver where I want to go. And he's just staring at me. Like, I'm sorry, I have no idea what you're talking about. This goes on for a couple of minutes. And at this point, I'm about to reach across to get the divider and just start wailing on this guy. And I said, I've got to stop learning Chinese because it's clearly just never going to happen for me or otherwise I'm going to get kicked out for beating up a cab driver. And so at that point I said, okay, I'm done. I'm not trying and it was one of those things that I think in a way, ultimately, in a way, benefited my long-term ability to understand China because it's kind of like the blind guy that has to develop other senses. It's kind of like the, the deaf guy that has to develop other senses. And so what became, I think, really my, my strength in being able to study China is those China relies a lot of things, uh, things that are unspoken. How do you read between the lines? How do you read body language? Things like that. And so I had to, I had to do that. Um, and this is especially true of, of data is just, you know, I threw myself into uh, 
um, understanding what's going on inside the Chinese economy. And I didn't, I wasn't able to read, you know, um, Chinese newspapers and things like that. I wasn't able to talk to a lot of people. So I just had to go with, you know, the tools at my disposal. Um, and so it was one of those things that it, it was, it was a weakness and it, it you know, was able to turn it around and, and, you know, in a way make it a strength. Yeah. So it's, 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 you kind of acknowledge where you're at and then, you know, do the Jim Chanos thing and just look at the numbers and see where they, uh, see where they take you. Yes, exactly. So, so what do you, let's talk a little bit about your media diet, uh, today. What do you, what do you really enjoy reading? Um, what in particular do you try to stay away from, uh, when you're trying to follow these sorts of, these sorts of issues? So basically, you know, I, I, I try to stay up. I, I, I try to read the things that, you know, other people are reading, but I also think that there are, I, I think there's a lot of interesting, when I first got to China, there really was, I think, a stunning lack of information depth on China. Um, and, and, and I say that not because I had any special expertise when I first arrived here, but there just really wasn't that much written about the Chinese economy. Now it's progressed so that you actually have um, dedicated blogs on, you know, the Chinese tech scene and podcasts on the Chinese tech scene. And you have things that are focusing on the Chinese metals industry and things like that. And so there's really been a flowering of, of, of really specialized things um, that, that really give you much more insight than, you know, on, on specialized areas that are things that I think really form the foundation of what we think of as the Chinese economy. Um, there's a couple of there's a couple of people that uh, do very specialized things on on the metals industry, steel, aluminum, tin, aluminum um, type of stuff. There's there's people that do podcasts on you know down in the Shenzhen uh, tech startup scene. Um, uh, an ex student of mine that now works for uh, that now does startup grind uh, underneath Google Ventures, a guy by the name of Jan Schmeckel um, mm. that does a lot of interesting things about. Um, that whole area. Um, there's even people that are now focusing just on uh, Chinese AI type stuff. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's um, there's also people like um, uh, um, is uh, Ann Stevenson Yang who does a lot of uh, research on uh, Chinese banks in the in the financial sector. Um, and so really, there's 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 been such a flowering over the past say five years of people that. Um, do, let's say, a little bit more niche type of uh, things, but they really give you such astounding detail into what's going in, what's going on in, in specific sectors of the Chinese economy that you really get a lot more information that, than, than you would um, if, if you just said, and I, and I don't mean to disparage any of these you know, organizations, but like the FT or Bloomberg specifically, because they're doing very specific things and they do podcasts, they do different things. Um, that are really very narrow focused things, but they provide such enormous wealth of information on those sectors. Sure. So you mentioned uh, aluminum and steel. And even though this was the first foray uh, that Trump took, uh, one of your, your, your central arguments in these recent blog posts is that how it's really not about these uh, metals and mining and, and anti-dumping stuff, but it's a more, um, but, but the root of the current trade conflicts is, is really a more broad um a challenge to the uh, international economic order that China is making and the U.S. is trying to push it back up against. Um, so I want to walk through that uh, in, a, in a pretty systematic way. And I think the first premise that you really need to establish is that uh, whether or not China is a closed market. So um, let's 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 have you make that pitch for us. 
So I actually just finished up a book chapter for someone on is uh, China a market or a non-market economy? Um, and basically, I think there, there's three different layers that I would look at this. One of the probably the most common way that people look at this is they say, well, the, the, the number of uh, state-owned enterprises, for instance, has declined in, in recent history. Um, they use various very clear metrics like that. And I, I don't think that's a, a, a reasonable, uh, the, the correct way to look at it. So if, if we look at just, for instance, the number of SOEs, yes, it is accurate to say that the number of SOEs is declined. But <clears throat> if, if, if we look at, for instance, um, the share of financing, um, for instance, that these companies are absorbing, there was a, there was a great uh, uh, picture in the FT today about um, the percentage of new loans that are going to SOEs. And it's, 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 it's an overwhelming share. Um, another thing, another way to look at this is um, many so-called private companies are actually have the state in some capacity as a controlling shareholder. One of the things that most people don't realize is that when they say we're looking at state-owned enterprise activity, that's just a, a, a corporate classification like an LLC or a C-Corp or something like that. Uh, you know, a, 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 an SOE does not specifically reference what is, the, what is the level of stakeholding that the state has. It's just a corporate classification. So if we actually look at companies and, and, and what percentage the state owns, we actually have an enormous number. Practically, um, if, if you exclude companies like Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, um, which do not have a, a officially a, a controlling state uh, shareholder. Um, probably virtually all large Chinese companies have the state somewhere in their shareholding structure as the controlling shareholder. Um, it will typically go through, let's say, anywhere from two to six layers before you find who, you know, what is the state entity that does that. Um, but you will very quite typically find that the state is a controlling shareholder. Um, the other thing that I think is very important to note is that in, in countries outside of China, we typically think of the regulator as essentially creating the rules of the game that market participants play and compete in within a specific market. Okay? Um, in China, the regulator actually does not do that. Um, they, they, they do engage in that activity, but they also go well beyond that. They set industrial output targets. They said, okay, this company can have this region of, uh, of within China. Um, they engage in a lot more activity that is specifically saying these are, these are the outputs, this is who's going to control it, this is the price. If we look at it as, as, a, as a simple example, um, coal, steel, you know, some of these hard numbers, some of these hard industries, what we actually see is that the regulator is, is, is specifying you know, what is the output. What is the output of the firm? What is the price that the firm is going to sell at? Um, when can they actually operate? Okay, these are not just hey, these are the rules of the game that you can go compete on. These are you know essentially the Soviet Union almost five year plan of how much you're going to produce this year, how much you're going to produce next year. What is the price that you're going to sell at? It is in many regards that you know especially in in the primary and secondary sectors. It is a state-controlled economy where Beijing is dictating to firms how much and at what price they're going to produce at, and, mo and more importantly, pro projecting forward into the future, what they are going to invest in, how they are going to invest, and where they are going to invest. And so this is very clearly a state-controlled economy.
Okay. Um, strong, uh, strong, uh, uh, first, uh, first point there. Let's push, let's push, let's push back a little bit. So, you know, that may be the case, but there also have been a lot of changes since, you know, 1982 or three or whatever. So, so put those into perspective and why should we not, um, be giving credence to the, uh, the line that the party says, which is that, you know, look at all our flowering, uh, you know, tech industries and, and our, our, our vibrant free market of, um, you know, venture capitalists and, um, and had, you know, had this just been all government control over the past, you know, there are, there are Chinese characteristics to the socialism, right? So, um, so, so what's, what's wrong with their, what's wrong with their line? So one of the, so the, the, the basic thrust that they, that they take is they say, well, look, you know, our, our, our banks are listed, our, our, our banks uh, compete for capital, um, things like that. And, and in fact, if, if by, by most standards, most Chinese banks are considered private because they are listed on uh, the stock exchange, they are some type of an LLC, they are not technically SOEs, okay? But if we actually, you know, even if we just look at the five major uh, banks in China, um, which res are responsible for probably at this point 50, 55% of deposits in China, um, what you see is that all of these companies are owned by uh, a company called uh, Weijin Investment, which is owned by the Chinese Investment Corporation, which is owned by the Ministry of Finance. Okay, So all of these companies are owned essentially by the Ministry of Finance. Okay. Um, and the, what is unique, and to, to you know, circle back to something I said earlier about the role of the regulator, is the the, the regulator is essentially um, uh, overseen by a branch of I forget the exact committee, but it's uh, it's the central group which is uh, controlled by the Ministry of Finance. So the mm -hmm. Ministry of Finance actually owns the banks and oversees the regulator that regulates the banks. Okay, that is not um, that is not the type of relationship that says. The regulator and the Ministry of Finance are taking an independent role to say, we're going to let these banks compete on uh, and, and say, you guys have to slug it out. We just set the rules of the game. Okay. And so that's why you see um, in some industries, you know, they, you know, the, the regulator will go as far as saying, this is how much, you know, your firm can produce this year. And this is the price that you produce it at. Mm. That is not a market economy. Just because, and this is one of the, you know, if, even if we look at VCs, you know, in, in VCs, what you typically see is that, you know, right now, everyone talks about the size of the VC industry. Um, State-controlled VCs in China control basically a trillion dollars of assets under management, okay? So VC industry in China is basically state-controlled, okay? Mm. Just because it's VC doesn't mean it's free, it, you know, it's competing in a, in a marketplace. Just because a, a bank is listed doesn't mean it's not controlled by the government. Sure. And so we need to distinguish between those, between those two areas. So another another key point, aside from the state control of companies, is the uh, uh, aspect of China as a closed market. So could you talk about that and, uh, and lay that case out for us? Sure. So one of the one of the areas that uh, I think has has frustrated um, foreign investors and uh, and let's say companies that want to export to China or just you know uh, try and get a piece of the Chinese market is the level of uh, cl uh, of how closed the market is. Really, the bigger the bigger barrier for a lot of companies is investment um, investment barrier. Um, China right now um, actually maintains a long list of what they call the negatives industries. Okay, and these are industries that are classified as either foreigners are free to invest in the industry, China, uh, they're discouraged, 
or they're completely prohibited from investing. Okay? And so when we talk about this negatives list, we're not talking about laser-guided missiles as, as on this list, okay? Um, we're talking, you know, just run-of-the-mill industries. For instance, dance troops and art studios, okay? Um, we're talking an enormous range of just completely, there's no way, it, it, it's impossible to think of ways that this can be a national security risk, mm. okay? Um, and so one of the things is in this area is that a lot of companies are either prohibited from investing in these industries or they are forced into JVs, okay? So one of the things is uh, China argues that, well, we don't force technology transfer, okay? And there is no law in China that says foreign companies are required to commit their technology um, uh, into the Chinese marketplace to make it available to Chinese partners. That's, that's completely accurate. Um, at the same time, it's completely inaccurate uh, what, what, what uh, Beijing regulators are saying. And here's, here's how it works. If you are a company that wants to enter the Chinese market, um, your product either faces, for instance, a 25% tariff, okay, 50% tariff, depending on the, depending on the product. Um, so you say, well, hey, I'm going to invest in China, and I'm going to uh, build it that way, so I can, so I don't have a, an, a, an export tariff to get into China. Okay, so then you say, well, oh, I see that I'm, only, I can only be a minority partner. Well, if I want to sell a GM car into China and not face a 25% tariff, how do I do that? Well, I have to set up a manufacturing operation where I am the minority shareholder, mm. okay? Well, if I'm gonna sell a GM car in China, how do I sell a GM car in China without the GM technology? You can't do it, can yeah. you? Okay, so it's entirely accurate to say that there is no law requiring that, but if you're going to sell a GM car or really you know, any you know, a Mercedes car or just about you know, any number of products, you can't do it without transferring that technology to your Chinese partner. So you've, you've talked a little bit about this, but I uh, want to push you more uh, on the so what of this. Okay, um, you know, SOEs control the market. Okay, it's sort of closed. Um, but what's, um, what's actually at stake that, uh, in your opinion, is worth, is worth really starting to fight over these, over these issues? So I think one of the things is, and, and this, is, this is something that a lot of people, I think, are, missing is we we think of this as a lot of people have thought of this for quite some time as your standard industrial thing. and um, Trump has, has has not done a good job on messaging and other things like that but this is this is not your standard industrial fight and you know the example I will use is for for many years uh, the EU and uh, the United States fought uh, a battle for many years as to what constitutes unfair, um, financial um, incentives for Airbus and Boeing, okay? Um, does the state of Washington providing tax incentives on workers hired um, to Boeing constitute an unfair advantage for Boeing? Does the EU guaranteeing uh, financial loans to Airbus on development costs constitute an unfair financial advantage for Airbus? Most importantly, these uh, the, the United States and Europe said we're going to litigate this dispute. Oh, sorry, we're going to litigate this dispute through the WTO. We're going to produce documents and we're going to fight based upon an accepted set of rules. Um, the the problem with China, where there's a lot of frustration, I think, not just with the United States, 
um, in re Republican and Democratic circles, but in other countries in the world, is that China has essentially said, we're not going to fight by those rules. Um, if you look at the best example being Visa and MasterCard, when China joined the WTO, they committed to opening up their payment and clearing system so that Visa and MasterCard could compete um, in China. Um, they dragged their feet for many, many years. Um, the Obama administration ultimately filed a WTO complaint that they were not living up to their obligations. Um, they lost that in, two, in 2012, I believe. Um, and six years later, we're still you know, looking at when is China going to open up its payment uh, and settlement um, market. Um, supposedly, American Express might have received um, approval uh, to do this. We, we, we don't know for sure yet. Um, Visa and MasterCard still are not on the horizon. So this is nearly 20 years that China has supposedly been um, ha had an obligation to do this, and they haven't. Um, one of the things that you hear from, uh, from many companies is that they don't want to be the one to complain to their home government to file a case against, um, uh, against China because they're scared of what uh, will happen to them. And you hear the same thing from countries, that they don't want to challenge um, uh, Beijing on their practices for fear of what will happen to their companies in China. Um, and so one of the things is, is that what you're seeing is is not just a standard industrial trade dispute where there's a dispute over you know, subsidies or not subsidies and we're going to litigate this at the WTO, but what are the rules of, uh, what are the rules of the game? How are, uh, how are these disputes going to be settled? And really what is the future of the international trades and trade and financial system? Can you paint us or just for uh, for all our listeners out there, if you haven't listened to Henry Gao's interview uh, on China Econ Talk this past episode, if you want a very different take uh, on China's relationship with the WTO than what uh, Chris is putting out there, be sure to check that episode out. So um, coming back to your your idea that uh, she's creating, want, looking to create a different uh, international economic order. Could you paint us a, a quick picture of, of what that was, what that would look like, and what sort of characteristics? It would have that that the current um, you know inter international structure currently doesn't. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I think the place I would start is how is China behaving domestically, um, and what you see domestically, and and the, and the data backs this up very clearly, um, is really a move towards recentralization of uh, the economy. Um, you've definitely seen a move towards. Um, greater control over the economy. Um, if we look at heavy industry, um, clearly this has been heavily tilted towards the SOEs um, in heavy industry. This is where the lending is going. Um, if we look at um, even the tech sector, for instance, what you're seeing is um, China likes industries where there are one or two, maybe three dominant companies and everybody else kind of works their way upwards underneath the umbrella that, that, that those companies provide. Um, and even within the tech sector, you're seeing that type of uh, that type of uh, industrial structure. Um, the bats, uh, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, um, are responsible for probably 60% of non-government, uh, or, or I should say, of the uh, unicorns um, in China. Um, they're responsible for an enormous share of the VC um, funding in partnership with the uh, with uh, 
uh, with the state-owned VCs. Um, so basically what you're seeing is, is that the bats are acting as essentially the chosen, uh, the chosen type of company. Um, so one of the things is that is, that is very concerning is if we apply this type of model outside of China, how is China going to you know, behave outside? Um, it's probably very fair to say that it's probably going to project a very, very similar type of um, institutional structure outside of its own borders. What it wants to see out internationally what it's uh, seeing uh, domestically. Um, and if we take, for instance, the, the RMB and SDR as, as an example, um, the RMB is, is, is clearly you know, not uh, freely floating. It is, uh, it is uh, tightly, tightly controlled um, on FX transactions, okay? So what we are seeing is not um, a, a move to a more open international system. Um, but is one where Beijing tries to act uh, to control the international system to avoid conflicts. You know, one of the things we hear is that Beijing has pressured countries to not file claims, to not bring uh, disputes. Um, and so if we say, how is Beijing going to act internationally? It's probably going to be along that type of model where it can control the price, uh, the flow um, of products. We've seen that with the RB, we've seen that in disputes. And I think that's what we would expect to see in the future. Enter Trump. So, um, you know, Trump's animosity towards, uh, towards China and Chinese trade practices is a, is a longstanding one. We don't necessarily need to dive into the, um, the, the psychological back, uh, backstory of that. Um, but I think, I think maybe starting from, uh, hiring Lighthizer, um, and the formulation of a of a somewhat coherent strategy, uh, if you want to if you want to take this story up to uh, 2017, 2018. So I think one of the things is, is that as, as I've talked to a variety of different people, one of the things that is very interesting is. And as you said, to leave aside many of the Trump issues that we could discuss uh, infinitely. Um, one of the things that is so interesting is that there are so many people that don't want to support Trump in his confrontation with Beijing, but they also recognize that Beijing has been um, a very unfair trader and has moved to uh, become even more protectionist, uh, if, you, if you can say that. Um, people don't want to support Trump. They, they, they don't like the way he's, he, he, he's going about it. Um, they don't like uh, the rhetoric. Uh, they don't like the brinksmanship. Um, at the same time, they recognize that, that these issues with China need to uh, be dealt with. Um, and I think one of the, and you know, I, I've kind of defended Trump um, in some of the things I've written, and I, I would paint myself as, as very similar in that I don't want to support Trump. But if we look at uh, some of the things, you know, for instance, Ch China has said things like, well, we're not going to negotiate with a gun held to our head, with blackmail. You know, we've heard some of these terms thrown about. But one of the things that is so concerning is, and I think one of the reasons there is support for China, for Trump's, how he, his confrontation with China, his confrontation with China and his receiving domestic political support is there are a lot of people in China that are in the United States that supported China over the years that, that said, hey, we're bringing China into the international system, that we are trying to defend China's interest that feel that China has taken advantage of their goodwill. 
Um, you know, China says we don't want to negotiate with a gun held to our head, but yet it's very difficult to think of a time within the past 20 years where China has negotiated, for instance, gradual opening of, of, of markets. I mean, after the WTO, it pretty much changed. And mm -hmm. China has said, we're not going to negotiate. Um, you look at, you know, um, industrial specific, let's say, industrial um, examples like Google. And they basically said Google needs to um, basically censor and do our bidding um, or they can leave the country. Um, you look at the RMB situation uh, about a, uh, a decade ago, um, and it was basically China telling people that, you know, this is, this is not going to change. And we could think of any number of examples. And so part of, the, part of what has driven it to this situation is that China has so steadfastly refused to gradually open its markets, gradually change things um, in very demonstrable ways. But that's, that's brought it where there is this, let's say, distaste, but willingness to accept um, Trump's confrontation with China. Yeah. So one of the one of the lines in your piece says that since 1990, almost no Democratic leader from a developed country has made a sustained effort of challenging Beijing and virtually all even the great moral signalers have strung from even the most tepid of challenges. Um, and the that, um, you know, uh, concoction of various uh, factors, whether that be optimism at uh, you know economic development leading to liberalization, the promise of, uh, you know, opportunities in China markets, exports making things cheaper, what have you, um, has really, um, uh, you know, staved off uh, any real uh, confrontation for, for almost almost going on 30 years now, as I mean, I guess, post um, uh, uh, once the post Yemen sanctions were lifted, it was kind of, uh, uh, you know, ready, set, go since then. So one of the uh, one of the interesting concepts you bring up is this like VORP um, uh, wins against replacement uh, idea in that uh, Trump really being uh, outside of the the bands of what you would expect a mainstream Republican or mainstream Democrat president um, to take from a tactical perspective and going about um, this sort of confrontation. Um, you know, it, it's it's hard to say whether it's going to be a win or a loss yet, so we can't really put a put a, um, a warp number on it. But um, if you could uh, walk through the the um, uh, the strategy and why it, oop, that's okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no. Hello. Okay. Um, so, if you can talk a little bit about uh, the the how Trump has has Trump has differed in his approach from uh, your average American politician and the uh, costs and potential benefits of of uh, of this uh, this type of negotiating. So, one of the things is is that Trump has taken a decidedly uh, confrontationalist and uh, rhetorically heated approach to China. I mean, and, and on a slight caveat, I will say within the past couple weeks, maybe month or so, you've definitely seen a little bit tighter running of the ship, but, you know, it's still a very confrontationalist approach. And this definitely, I think, even by Republican standards or Democratic standards, falls well outside the mainstream. Um, you know, whether Republican or Democrat, you had a for many years, you had the Clintons, you had the Bush, you had uh, the Obama team, which were, you know, very decidedly, I think, very pro, relatively pro-China. Even if they acknowledged some of the problems, there was definitely um, much more willingness to defend China and try and try and bring China into the system and promote trade and things like that. 
Um, and so one of the things that I think is, is important to look at is that Trump is doing a lot of decidedly non-mainstream things and how he's going about dealing with China. But I think one of the issues that is, that is kind of being lost a little bit in all of this uh, discussion is there's structural issues at play. And so um, baseball statisticians, if I can digress uh, briefly, baseball statisticians have come up with this uh, idea of what they call wins above replacement. If I signed a, a, another professional baseball player to replace somebody on my roster, what, uh, how many wins above replacement does my current player provide me? Okay, how many you know, plus or minus wins above replacement over the course of a season? And so one of the things that I think is, is based upon the current mood in China, um, um, economically and things like that, one of the things is, is that even though Trump has, has taken a very confrontational approach, it's very, very difficult for me to see how if we replace Trump with almost any poli reasonable politician that we could think of, take Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, you know, Mitt Romney, whoever you want it to. It's very, very difficult for me to see how Trump is much different from zero wins above re replacement um, as a president. And I say that primarily not pro-Trump, but in the sense of I don't think China is in the mood right now to change for anybody. Even if Trump did everything right, you know, filed it with the WTO, negotiated in good faith, in, you know, in a non-confrontationalist approach, it's very difficult for me to see how China is going to make any con real concession for anyone because they have laid out this is our strategic plan of what we're going to do. And if you don't like it, you can, you, you know, you can deal with the consequences. Again, if we, if we look at how they've behaved domestically, you know, on, on economics, on business, on finance, um, it has not been a pattern of, you know, um, measured negotiation. It is, you know, Beijing saying this is how things are going to be done. And if you don't like it, we're going to start throwing people in jail. So it's very difficult for me to see how Trump is going to very much from, let's say, zero presidential wins above mm -hmm. replacement. So what's interesting is is this is the same um, this is the sort of same tack that he's taken with North Korea and there I mean it, what what he's really doing is like opening up the cone of potential possibilities and like increasing maybe maybe incre maybe the winds will be up maybe the winds will be down but really the variance um, and the uncertainty is what what's going up and what's scary about the North Korea stuff is for a while um, you know the, the 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 you know the doomsday clock ticked a little closer. <laughs> Um, but but basically what you're saying is that, um, you know, there's no such real thing as like a U.S.-China economic doomsday clock um, and, and, and the kind of downside risks of taking this more aggressive stance won't actually matter all that much um, from uh, from a, you know, U.S. economic health, um, global international economic order perspective. From, uh, you know, if you, if you look at some of the estimates that have been done, you know, just to give you an example. So Trump is, uh, let's take the 50 billion um, that, you know, that we're talking about um, initially, um, 50 billion in a nearly 20 trillion dollar economy is, you know, yes, there will be specific firms, there will be specific, you know, people that are very affected um, in the macroeconomic like picture. <laughs> like, not getting get more expensive whiskey, but sorry. Continue. No, exactly. Let's not, minimize, let's, let's not minimize the impact on Americans who like their um, their imports living here in China. But sorry, please continue. Well, my, my favorite, my, you know, some of the things I, I, I was reviewing the tariff list and 
Um, I think uh, China slapped uh, tariffs on U.S.-made durian, and, and, and you know, I don't even know where. So there's America, actually a great, um, there's a great the, Planet Money podcast that invent that that investigated this very thing, yeah. and they called the three people who farm durian in the U.S. And you would not be surprised to learn that they're all in Puerto Rico. Um, and they, you know, cause it's like a tropical fruit, right? There aren't a lot of places you can grow it. And, uh, the reporter calls up the durian farmer and goes, you know, so like, do we export any durian to China? And the guy just cracks up and is like, you know, the last time, you know, this is so far away. Like the, there are probably even laws against it. So the, um, uh, the idea, uh, the, Did, the, do the, they import? No, 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 no. They don't there's, there's no durian export. There's no durian export okay. to the U S. So the idea is that, um, or the, 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 um, uh, the, the hypothesis of, uh, I think it was Brad Smith, the um, uh, Peterson guy, um, was saying that they just probably had like a list of all the fruits and some Excel file and like copy pasted it. Um, not necessarily seen because, you know, right now the number is zero of uh, the amount of imports, you know, like Hawthorne, all these other all these other fruits that like are not quite a thing. In the US. If, if you if you know, you know, tell me because I also saw there that China was uh, placing tariffs on U.S. produced flamethrowers. Any, any insight into that situation? You know, I I, I think we're gonna have to find some flamethrower uh, <laughs> flamethrower uh, creators. Maybe this maybe our next episode. We'll we'll, <laughs> we'll talk to them about their uh, their export troubles. But um, uh, sorry. So to so to get back to the um uh, the, the downside risk of of the yeah. fifty billion. And, and so I think one of the things is and and one of the very interesting things. Um, was I think it was the Rhodium Group that uh, produced a piece that maybe the best solution for the U.S.-China trade uh, relationship is to, um, they almost use this Gwyneth Paltrow term of uh, conscious uncoupling, um, that maybe there needs to be some uh, separation um, in the supply chains and things like that. Um, and one of the things that I think you're, you're seeing is, um, is, especially in a lot of the industries where that's, easily feasible, um, let's say garments, textiles, you know, a lot of basic manufacturing, things like that. Um, you're, you're already hearing firms saying, well, maybe I need to move some of my production back to Mexico or Vietnam or something like that. Um, because I think there is a very sustained risk that, you know, for the foreseeable future, um, and I'm not just talking the next, say, three months, I'm talking, you know, the maybe next, you know, three to 10 years, um, you're looking at a period where Chinese-U.S. trade relations will become such that firms need to very actively manage their, let's say, political risk of, you know, am I producing for the U.S. market? Am I producing for the Chinese market? And one of the things is, is, and is that, that, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, that these investment barriers are much bigger issues than, than the trade barriers specifically, is um, Economic theory tells us that, you know, firms will invest in a country if the market is big enough for me to justify operations. Okay, so I'm not going to start a plant in Luxembourg so I can, you know, serve the Luxembourg market. Okay, I am going to start a plant in the Chinese market to serve the Chinese uh, market. Okay, and that's and that's exactly what we've seen. We've seen companies, uh, U.S. companies say, I'm going to start a Chinese plant so I can serve that. I'm going to set up as Pizza Hut, you know, marketing staff, so I can understand the Chinese market to serve that. And so one of the things is, is that you're, you very, very easily could be looking at, you know, a, a period over the next couple of years where firms have to say, hey, I need to, you know, do this for the Chinese market, I need to do this for the U.S. market, and come up with very, very distinct strategies based upon that political risk. So, um, 
is this a bad thing for the world uh, if if we end up with these kind of two independent, uh, you know, supply chains economies? I mean, is this, uh, uh, you know, is this going to make World War One more likely, World War Three more likely to happen? Or, or what, what do you think are the kind of like broader takeaways aside from the, you know, loss of trade efficient, you know, the 0.5 the, percent the loss in, uh, you know, economic efficiency that the world um, uh, world is going to face? My own personal sense um, is that the world is moving uh, in the direction where, for lack of a better term, and, and this might not be the most appropriate historical analogy, but I think you're moving almost more towards a Cold War type of system. Um, you, you've seen definitely somewhat of a, um, let's say, a little bit of a warming of relations between Russia and China. Um, you've definitely seen, you know, for instance, uh, you know, there were just recently missiles placed in the South China Sea. Um, some of these types of things, which, you know, it's, it's not crazy to think that, um, that you're entering a little bit more of, you know, that type of system where countries are going to treat each other very differently. We always took for many years the system as a given in the sense of everybody agrees on the values that we have and want to promote in, you know, in, in the countries that were really, let's say, the, the, the major powers of the world, Germany's, your France's. Um, et cetera. And then post-1989, there was even this, this thought that you know, Russia was going to join this system. Um, in the past couple of years, let's say the past five years, I think you've seen people begin to think, wow, this might not be going in, you know, just everybody's going to sing Kumbaya and agree on the rules of, of human governance at a country level and at an international level. And you're, it's, it's not crazy to think that you're at the beginning stages of you know, a little bit more of a bipolar system where maybe you have the United States, you know, and some of the, the, the liberal democracies um, with, with China and Russia and some of the more authoritarian states um, saying, you know, no, this, these are our visions of, of, of how the world should be. And that's, uh, that's not a pleasant thought. And I don't, I don't think that's something anyone relishes, but it's, that's not a crazy look at how the world might be over the next, you know, few years. So um, with that negative note, let's try to play, um, let's try to paint the picture of the positive outcome. So um, can you uh, walk us through what, um, what would happen in, a in the Chinese bureaucracy and what would happen uh, if um, for, whatever, uh, for whatever reason uh, the, the Trump pressure works out? What I am hopeful as a plausible settlement. Um, so I don't know if we've, if we've seen the, if everyone has seen the documents that, you know, the U S side supposedly asked for and what the Chinese side supposedly asked for. Um, my, my take on what the U S side asked for is they basically said, this is everything we want. I mean, realistically it was pretty reasonable in, you know, everything that they were saying, this is what we want are based on valid complaints. They're clearly not going to get everything they want. They just said, since we're asking, we might as well ask for everything we want. Um, the Chinese side, um, I, to be honest, I thought it was the Chinese asks were more unreasonable in the sense that, look, you know, fact of the matter is, it, you know, Chinese tech companies are never going to be uh, able to bid for government procurement. Okay. Yeah. The, the U.S. government is never going to let ZTE bid for government server projects. Okay. It's never going to happen. Um I'm hoping that somewhere there can be some uh, some plausible alternatives. And 
I think there's actually a lot of space for that. And what I mean by that is, look, I understand uh, China is not going to give up 2025. Okay, that's you know that's fine. I, I think that's a that's a very reason. That's not um, that's not entirely unreasonable from the Chinese side. They have to commit to some market opening um, on their side in the investment market in the trade market. Um, and I think probably the biggest concern of the Trump administration is not that China signs a deal, but that they actually follow through. Because there's been so many deals um, where China has not actually executed what they say they're going to execute. So if China just even says, we're going to commit to this relatively limited market opening in a couple of areas, and we actually follow through on it, I think that would change the tone and tenor of the entire relationship with the United States, with Europe, with Japan. Um, and I strongly suspect, and they haven't said as much, but I think one of the things that, one of the reasons Trump is pushing for specific deficit reduction target is not the economic theory of it, but that that is a very observable metric to say, we, we can tell that China's living up to its end of the bargain. Mm. Okay. If China commits to ending this specific, let's say, non-tariff barrier, um, there's 10 other non-tariff barriers that they can roll out that, you know, will have the same ultimate effect. A deficit reduction target is a very observable, quantifiable metric to say, is Beijing living up to their target? All this is to say, I think if Beijing took some very verifiable, hard steps to say, we're going to do this, and they actually did it, I think that would totally change the tone and tenor of the, of the of the conversation. From the U.S. side, I think what is probably what is most likely going to happen is is they're going to end a lot of the tariff threats. They're going to roll back um, some of the a lot of the steel and aluminum um, tariffs that not just the Trump administration rolled out, but the Obama administration rolled out. Because in in fairness to the Chinese side, um, China is quite clearly not dumping steel and aluminum uh, and, and similar type of products because uh, prices are so elevated right now. When Obama was originally rolling those out, it, there, was, there was a very good argument for that. Anymore, there, there's, there's not. And I think that's probably a very good alternative where the Trump administration agrees to roll back a lot of things. China actually takes verifiable uh, steps to open up uh, the, chi uh, the Chinese market somewhat, um, even if they don't give on 2020. So uh, a few points on that. First, I think you're being a little too generous. Um, just in the in the Trump focusing on the on the trade deficit thing. I mean, maybe it has it. It surely has this like ancillary aspect of okay, this is something that you know international trade is very easy to date, get data on and 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 track. But you know, is a number, and he's been focusing on this number for thirty years now. So this is not like a um, uh, um, this is not like something that Lighthizer whispered into his ear, saying that this is the um, uh, this is the one we're going to want to hammer. Huh? I, I think I think I think that's completely fair. I think I think it is one of those you know ancillary benefits, um, and it is clearly something Trump has been focused on. I mean, I mean, somebody sent me a YouTube clip from like twenty or thirty years ago where he was banging on about the U.S. trade deficit. It wasn't with China at the time, but it was the U.S. trade deficit. And I think the the benefit of it now is that it you know and you just happens say to line up. It happens with, to line up. Yes, exactly. It happens yes. to line. Up. The clock the clock is striking midnight. Um, the other um, the other thing which I think is is going to be an interesting dynamic if they do get into some sort of positive um, uh, you know a positive cycle of, of of liberalization is I would be very surprised 
if uh, Trump could get the get get Congress to do anything um, from a from a market opening standpoint. I mean, just, this is maybe maybe there are some executive stuff he can roll back, but I don't think Republicans are stupid enough to um, push uh, to push a China liberalization uh, you know legislative agenda um, with the with the bloodbath that's about to happen in um, uh, in eighteen months in the midterm. So. Um, the, the, the gives the uh, the chips that are actually on Trump's uh, side in terms of I mean there's a new the Scythius is about to get strengthened um, it's the, the the there's I don't think there's I think very little um, uh, 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 momentum at all for a um, uh, for a rollback in the sort of investment uh, restrictions that that the Chinese side is looking for well so so on the investment restriction side you're you're entirely right uh, you are 100 percent right the, the, the good thing, though, in, in a lot of stuff, there's a lot of executive action that Trump can take, you know, on, on the various dumping uh, measures, um, on some of the elevated tariffs uh, from that he implemented, that Obama implemented. Um, there's 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 a, a lot that he can do there on the investment strategy. Absolutely not. And uh, in fairness, that is an issue. It's not just Republicans. There is actually a lot of Democratic uh, support. One of the issues with like ZTE and Huawei, for instance, is um, they've never, the U.S. government has never really tipped its hands as to why they've maintained this position for so long, but it has been so bipartisan for so long um, that I'm will I'm inclined to accept that, you know, when the Obama administration says, no, this is, this is a national security issue, and Trump says it, that, that it's probably not just your run-of-the-mill um, protectionism, for, for, for lack of a better term, that there's actually something going on. For sure. Yeah, I mean... I was taking the Democrats not being in favor for this as a given, um, but um, uh, yeah, there's certainly um, uh, certainly going to be tough uh, a tough a tough hill to climb on that end. And the, and the last thing about that is, that it, and this is one of the things is, is that if Trump ever got his act together, even on the Democratic side, there would be widespread support to take a, a much more tougher stance with China. So, and that's one of the things is probably the biggest mistake that China that Trump has made is Republican or Democrat, you know, American or German, UK, Australian, whatever, there is such a well of support to take a tougher stance with China that if Trump ever does get his act together and actually appoint someone to be a congressional international liaison, um, I think it will really surprise China how deep the support is to to take a tougher stance with China. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what's really remarkable um, just looking at the past 30 years of, of American history is, is how long this kind of elite consensus has been able to override, um, concerns, uh, um, in, in, you know, uh, actual America, uh, about the, about, you know, jobs getting taken away and, and, um, uh, you know, other, other economic threat that, that's trying to posing that China has been posing. I mean, it's, it, the, uh, the, the fact that this, um, consensus has lasted so long is, is, Probably even more surprising than the fact that um uh, you know we, there's finally a president that's broken through and, and decided to tap on this sort of uh, economic anxiety. And, and I think that one of the things that's so interesting is over the past couple of weeks, Trump's numbers, even with all the things about uh, his problems with porn stars, his numbers have actually ticked up. Yeah. Um, can I say it's because of China? No, I can't. But is it is it reasonable to assume? Well, I mean, it's Kanye. Let's be clear. It, it's Kanye. Um, it's Kanye. <laughs> Um, can, can we say it's because of China? No, but, you know, that's probably not a crazy assumption. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, uh, I mean, there were parts of America that, you know, had this China shock. I mean, and again, I don't want to overplay because I, I think competition is, is helpful. I think it was good for China. 
I think them entering the WTO was good. Um, but one of the things is, is this is why there's there's this political base of support for Trump, even among a lot of Democrat, you know, working rank and file Democrats, um, because he's actually taking on China. Yeah. Is it the way it should be done? Is there, you know, is he doing it? Is he making a lot of mistakes along the way? Absolutely. Is there that base of support because he simply opted to take the fight? Absolutely. And so hopefully um, this will cause with even within the Trump administration, some saying, hey, how can we do this better? Yeah, I mean, there was a real, um, you know, the, the line for um, for decades now has been and I think I think like Obama copped up to this explicitly saying, um, hey, you know, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to beat you guys up and I'm going to beat China up in the uh, in the campaign season. But, you know, things will be OK once um, uh, once I come into power. Um, you know, I, the, the calls uh, from uh, H.W. in H.W. In Bush's memoir um, post Tiananmen talking about, look, we're going to try to work through this and, and you don't we don't want our we don't want the economic future of uh, of uh, China to be in peril just because of these political issues. I mean, this has been a real constant for a really long time. And, um, uh, you know, Trump Trump really has the gumption to uh, to to kind of blow that uh, consensus out of the water. And as you were saying, it was it was something that was building for sure. This was not it was building, you know, in the heartland, but also, you know, in within the you know halls of uh, you know Massachusetts Avenue think tanks. Yeah, and and that's and that's one of the things. And I, I I sincerely hope China is not misreading the situation because even among the people that were you know five, ten, twenty years ago going to bat for China, saying this is you know we want to build this relationship, there's a real sense of you know look they've you know they they're totally playing hardball now and they want nothing to do with, you know, how the rules of the game work. And yeah, I, you know, I don't want to support Trump, but there is a part of me that says, yeah, he needs to do this. So um, one of the big things you've been critical of uh, the administration for is the messaging. Um, And uh, you say what makes this so inexplicable is that the White House can stand on facts. Um, So earlier in this interview, you gave us the kind of economist's pitch of, uh, you know, what's 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 so important and what's a big deal about this. But I want you to play Sarah Sanders um, <laughs> for uh, for a few minutes and, and give us the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the White House press secretary's uh, pitch to the American people about why um, this is something worth paying more for uh, for T-shirts and, and shoes for. So one of the things that I would do is is, you know, people feel this in America very, you know, very realistically. You have. Um, uh, you know, they, they always talk about a lot of the a lot of the counties and states that carried Trump to victory. Where are these people that were most affected by Chinese trade? Um, because one of the things that happens in international trade is that, especially in a country like the United States, you have p- fewer people doing low wage manufacturing and more people doing higher value added, you know, computer, financial tech, you know, ser- services like that. And so a lot of the people who were most Im- impacted were, you know, the companies in, you know, the manufacturing, you know, heartlands of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, places, places like that. So one of the things that I, I, you know, if I was advising the Trump administration is, is, is they need to really get on their messaging of like, look, this is why we're doing this. It's not because we hate China. It's not because we want to keep China down, but make a pitch to the American people of, we want China to play by the rules of what the international economy economic system is. It's designed to promote free trade. It's designed to promote capital flows. It's designed to promote dispute resolution. Countries should feel free, whether it's the United States or whether it's Norway, 
handed out a Nobel Prize and was scared to confront China when China, you know, um, hit them with trade problems. Okay. Um, we want that type of international system. We need to make that pitch to the American people. They need to make that pitch to China um, and say, look, and, and I will say to a little bit of degree with uh, slightly defending the Trump administration, you've seen that as they were coming over to China. Okay. Um, I think it was Lightgeiser that said something effective. We don't want to change the economic system of China. We want it to become more open to international competition. Okay. Um, and they need to they need to come up with better talking points because it is understandable from the Chinese side that you know uh, the U.S. side has been spewing such you know rhetoric about um, about the China threat and other things like this and uh, uh, and Trump has said you know tweeted out many times about China um, that they need to take a more measured approach um, about what they want from China how to um, and how to work together. Um, even if they are going to take um, a tougher approach, yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like a bit of a, a bit of a catch twenty two here, and in that um, we may not be able to, there may not be a world in which a president exists that's able to be super aggressive, but at the same time um, be organized. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess, looking back in Reagan uh, in the early years, the way he took on. Um, Japan leading up to the Plaza, Plaza Accords, that's kind of like the model that you'd hope for um, in a sort of happy resolution. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, Japan was in our economic umbrella uh, or in our security umbrella, and they didn't have too much of a choice and couldn't just like turn our back on us, turn their back on us. But um, this is definitely not the case with uh, China in, in, in 2018. So the um, uh, you know, the managing of, of, of rhetoric with like really aggressive, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in, in tariffs is a, is a really tricky, um, uh, really tricky game to play. Because I also think like in order to get the American people's support, like the, like the tweets are half the battle. Right. Um, but, but the more you, but the more you pour the fire on for the domestic audience, the harder it is for, um, for, for China to be okay, finding, uh, finding a middle ground. So, and you know, what's, what's so interesting to me, and this is, this is to me the biggest mistake Trump has always made is if he needs to appoint a domestic point person, he needs to appoint an international point person. And that domestic person needs to go to the Chamber of Commerce. And they need to say, look, this is what we want to work with you so that we have a strategy to go deal with your concerns to China. They need to go to the AFL-CIO and say, look, AFL-CIO, we know you have issues with China. Okay, How can we get your support and what are the issues we need to take to China to get your support? He needs to go to Chuck Schumer. He needs to get Paul Ryan. He needs to go down the list, you know, the GEs of the world, all the way through to the small business guys, okay? Because you know what? All of those people, constituencies, do have China frustrations, okay? He needs to appoint an international point person. He needs to call up Angela Merkel. Angela Merkel has expressed the same concerns, okay? Theresa May in the UK, okay? I mean, go down the list of world leaders. They've had the same problems, okay? Um, President uh, President Moon in South Korea with with that okay same issues okay I guarantee you if Trump says I'm going to take a couple of months and I'm going to get all of these constituencies domestically and internationally to say we're going to go talk to China and we're going to go over these in a systematic way he will have enormous support yeah I mean well 
Maybe, uh, but because Trump's Trump's, maybe not. Um, I mean, this is the this is the I don't know if it's a tragedy, but this is the um, uh, this is this is the crux of it. And, and we the, might have unicorns the, and rainbows yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. No, it's on, it's on the one hand, you know, we spoke earlier about he's the only guy um, uh, in like the realm of possible of possible presidents who is willing to take such an aggressive stand. But um, he's also probably the only one who who would be doing it in as a boneheaded way as he uh, as he has been. Um, so. Uh, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the, the, the variance cone could have been tilted to like a higher, uh, certainly like a higher range of like positive possible outcomes. Um, but, you know, because he is who he is, uh, the, uh, you know, he's really, he's really shooting himself in the foot with a lot of the, um, uh, really important, uh, tactical things that you'd want to be doing in a much smarter way going about this sort of high stakes, uh, and, and, and let me, propose a scenario. I'm not about to say that this is the scenario. I'm not about to say it's happening or will happen. I'm saying one of the things, though, that I think is happening that might be a a Trump strength is he's so unpredictable that the Chinese don't know what to do with him. Okay, The Chinese have always dealt with Goldman Sachs, Citibank, et cetera, bankers. They come over and they say, hey, we want to build this relationship and things keep moving forward. They make maybe some concessions and things just keep going. Because Trump is who Trump is, they don't know what to do with him, okay? And when I talk about presidential wins above replacement above about Trump, the key thing I think to keep in mind is, let's assume you had somebody, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Mitt Romney, pick whoever you want. You're probably only raising the probability that you're going to get a good negotiated outcome from China, very minimally in my opinion. Mm. I don't think you're going to say, you know, make up a number. You know, let's say Trump has a 25% chance of getting a good negotiated outcome. I don't think if Hillary Clinton or Mitt Romney, and I don't mean to criticize either of those people, but I don't think you're going to take your probability from 25% to 50%. Mm. I think you'd maybe take it from 25, maybe to 30, 35%. Yeah. But I don't think you're going to like, you know, all of a sudden get a radically different outcome. So on that note, I'm going to ask a selfish question. So, uh, as a, uh, a prospective uh, master's student shopping around for thesis topics, um, what do you think uh, would be an interesting way uh, to, to to follow this story from an academic perspective over the next uh, over the next few years? And 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 kind of what you know, as the as the former methods teacher, what would you um, <laughs> uh, what would you uh, what would you propose uh, to, to to give this storyline an academic uh, sheen? So probably one of the things that I would look at. Um, is and, I, and I'll back up and tell you a story. I was I was getting on a plane and I was sitting next to a guy from a large American company, and he was telling me how he this was a couple of years ago how he was already starting to move some of his production around because China was already becoming expensive and um, the time delay and stuff like that. So he was moving some to Mexico. He was moving some to different parts of Asia. I suspect a lot of what we're actually seeing in the supposed tariff pain. And in the short term, let's say three to six months, you can expect pain. Bubbles, you can expect pain. But one of the things I suspect you're, you, you would be seeing is firms saying, hey, if China's going to have tariffs, I can move some of my manufacturing to Bangladesh, Vietnam, Mexico, wherever. What is the response of firms to these implementation of tariffs? Okay. Apple can't move. Okay, Foxconn is Foxconn. They employ, what is it, a quarter million people making iPhones. Okay, you can't move that facility. Okay, but there are a lot of firms that are probably on those on those lists that are saying, hey, I can I can relocate what I do. Um, one of the things I would look at is 
is how much of this is natural progression away from China. You know, textile and garments were leaving China. They've been leaving China for a while. Does a lot of this just get speeded up because of this? Um, I would suspect so. And you can probably get a lot of good uh, firm level data as to where, uh, where production goes for a lot of these different things. That's one of the things is because you have a very clear, like there are tariffs implemented. What was it before? What is it? What is it after? Um, you, pr you probably need a couple of years in the rearview mirror to, uh, to look at that. Um, but you could, if, if you were looking at it now, if you're doing your thesis project now, one of the things you probably could look at um, is how much of that has been happening and match it to tariff lifts that, that were announced, because I guarantee you they probably, and I'm assuming they did. I know that this happened, uh, historians tell us that this happens you know, when these tariff lists have been announced historically, is they say, we want to essentially promote change. And so rather than hitting, for instance, Apple iPhones, which can't be moved really, how can we promote change so that it goes elsewhere? Yeah. Um, if you look at some of like the multi-fiber agreement back in the mid to late 90s, um, what you actually saw were firms, you know, trying to speed up that. And you actually even saw a secondary market so that, um, for instance, um, one, and I forget the exact story, it was something like a country couldn't produce ski down jackets, but they could produce vests. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they produced vests, somebody else produced um, zip on sleeves. And so they would, so the co country B would produce the sleeves, country A would produce the um, the the best they would ship them to country B to get assembled in country B and shipped. Sure. Okay. I would suspect you would probably be seeing a tariff list that would that would match that type of logic. Cool. Got another one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that I, I I would suspect that that would be very interesting to see is how does this change investment patterns. Um, one of the things that you always see, you know, there there was a great piece on when Boshi Lai was. Um, when Bo Lai was arrested, how did this impact Chongqing listed companies uh, or listed companies that were based in Chongqing? Um, is how is this uh, how is this impacting investment patterns? Um, Chinese uh, investors always talk from a from a stock from a stock market perspective always trade always trade with the government. Okay, um, I would bet that you would be looking Chinese investors are looking at this in, in the domestic stock market okay, there's got to be a list of companies that are going to benefit from these tariffs. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we've seen is actually, um, is it actually pushed the price of aluminum higher, okay? And this was actually very good for uh, Chinese aluminum companies, which are still struggling from overcapacity, uh, pretty thin profit margins, things like that. So how does this impact um, those companies? And then also, how does it impact uh, Chinese uh, investment overseas, okay? Um, um, and I'm talking in this uh, realm in a lot more like F, uh, outward direct investment type of stuff. Um, the best in, and, and also for international investors in China, one of the things is, is um, when Reagan um, negotiated uh, the voluntary export restraints with Japan, what that, uh, what that actually prompted was is, uh, is that actually prompted Japanese car companies to start investing in uh, American automobile factories so that they uh, didn't uh, so that they didn't have the tariff. Now it actually worked out very well because um, um, because of uh, a number of reasons, primarily transport, other issues. U.S. automakers are already here. How is this going to impact, for instance, uh, Chinese companies that are looking to go abroad? Sure. You haven't seen a lot of success um, in Chinese companies looking to go abroad. It's quite possible that this could. Uh, 
prompt uh, a lot more interest in Chinese companies uh, going abroad and certain types of, um, as I talked about earlier, companies separating their, okay, this is our U.S. strategy, this is our China strategy for our supply chain or manufacturing. Are international companies going to say, okay, I have to essentially separate my U.S. and my Chinese operations and prompt different both, let's say, FDI into China and FDI out of China. And even if you come up with a with a negative result, that's still a that's still a pretty interesting one. If these firms being not not all that worried about um, uh, these sorts of trends, are figuring that they can kind of go on um, uh, go along their merry way without too much um, uh, too much trouble. Absolutely. And one of the one of the other things is is there's always a wealth of interesting data issues um, in China. Um, and one of the things is, for instance, that. Um, you've seen is um, people like, you know, some of the Trump people were saying, well, there's what they call transshipment, where um, you would ship, let's say, Chinese aluminum to Mexico, and then from Mexico it would go to the United States, labeled as Mexican aluminum. Um, That's typically been, um, that's always going to exist, but that's typically been a pretty small portion of international trade. So it would be interesting to see, for instance, if you see spikes in, you know, let's say, if... Uh, drops in uh, U.S. imports from China of this product, but uh, then there's Chinese spikes in exports to Mexico and then spikes in um, Mexican exports to the United States. Sure. Okay. Um, That's typically been pretty small, um, but, you know, it's always interesting. And as you said, a negative result because it's like, look, guys, this really isn't happening. So um, with that homework, uh, I will uh, I will go back to my merry merry cave um, and and dig up some fun data sets with that. But I just want to say uh, thanks again for coming on the show. This was a, this was a real pleasure today. Thanks for having me.